Uh, as we begin, I just wanted to uh, kick off by asking you, what do you think of when you hear the word victory? Right? What do you think of when you hear the word victory? Um, any thoughts? Sorry? Winning? Yeah, winning. Fortnite? Did you say Fortnite? That's awesome. Any other thoughts? The Raiders. Oh, yep. So uh, we think of plenty of things when we hear the word victory. Now, uh, one particular sports brand has put a whole bunch of money to promote themselves uh, with this idea of, of victory. So I'm just going to show you this short video. Uh, forgive the, the, the bad quality. Hopefully you get it, right? Uh, that's making a bit of fun at Nike. Uh, but the idea of victory is so compelling, right? Um, the main characters of every great story, whether it's a TV show or a movie or a book that you watch, uh, have characters usually on some journey to achieve victory, right? You've got, uh, you've got Luke Skywalker over the dark side, you've got Simba over Scar, and as we've already mentioned, we've got the Raiders over the Roosters. Yeah. Uh, but what about victory? What about victory in the Christian life? How should we think about it? Uh, if we follow Jesus, um, in a very real sense, we are victors, right? We, after all, we follow a, a king who has conquered. We follow the God of the universe. And those things are true. So, so how should victory look for the Jesus follower? Our passage today, read out uh, from John 12, uh, I think gives some pretty weighty insights to the topic. And so I hope you're intrigued. Keep your Bibles open. Um, the roadmap of where we're going is in the bulletins. It'll be in the screen behind me as well. So we're going to look at three points together. The timing of victory, the pathway of victory, and then the effects of victory. Yeah? Timing, pathway, effects. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll uh, look further into it. Father God, we thank you that you are a God that uh, desires for us to know you, uh, desires for us um, to live uh, for you, and um, uh, you don't leave that for, to ourselves to kind of work out. Um, you, you speak to us. And so, Father, we pray that we'd be coming really expectant uh, that you would be um, speaking to us in our very moment, in our very lives uh, right now. Uh, Father, we ask that um, uh, just things that perhaps uh, might be distracting us, things that might be keeping us from hearing you speak powerfully in us, in us, uh, Father, that we might be really conscious and really sensitive to lay those things aside, to surrender those things, to hear you uh, loudly and clearly. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so let's begin by looking at the timing of uh, victory, the timing of victory. Now, in case you weren't aware, the chapter that we're looking at uh, from the Gospel of John today um, is the last 
chapter we'll be looking at from the biography this year. The reason for that is John 12 is a bit of a um, halfway marker in the book. It concludes the part of the biography where Jesus has been among the people, that Jesus has been giving signs and clues about who he is. Right, from chapter 2 onwards, um, in the life of Jesus' ministry, he's been revealing more and more about who he is. Right? He said to the people who have been listening to him uh, a little bit about who he is. He's, he's given a whole uh, stack load of testimonies to prove who he is. And he's also performed wondrous miracles and signs to show who he is. And so at this particular point in the biography, as we reach chapter 12, this speaking and this demonstrating reaches a climax. If you remember back to last week in John chapter 11, Jesus just performed his most powerful miracle yet. He physically raised the dead. He raised Lazarus, who'd been decaying and rotting in a tomb for four days from the grave before witnesses, all to show that those who believe in him will live. Now, that's a massive claim, and so if you haven't had a chance to look or hear last week's talk, jump online, have a listen, uh, if you've missed it. But, but that's kind of what's happened so far, right? Uh, and as you can probably imagine, because Jesus has kind of had this uh, traction and speaking and doing miracles, and, 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 and now he's just physically raised Lazarus from the dead, the groundswell of people who are fascinated in Jesus, the groundswell of people following Jesus at this particular moment in the biography is at an all-time high. Right? This man, people realize, he's not just a healer. He's not just a prophet. This man just physically raised the dead. So if there was ever a time, if there was ever a time to be glorified, if there was ever a time to declare victory, if there was a moment that Jesus could seize, surely this would be it. Right? If Jesus had any half-decent political advisor, they would be telling him, now's the time. Now's the time to be king. Uh, I guess, and that continues, right? I mean, that kind of takes shape as we begin chapter 12. We didn't read all of the chapter, but if we look back at the beginning of the chapter, in verses 1 to 3, we see that Jesus is anointed. Right? Mary uh, uh, anoints Jesus with this expensive perfume that's worth about a year's wage, uh, just like kings were often anointed in the Old Testament. If you fast forward a little bit in verses 12 and 13, we see these great crowds. They're fascinated with Jesus on hearing that he's on the way to Jerusalem. So they take palm branches, which symbolize Jewish nationalism and ruling power, and they shout in his direction that he is the conquering and returning king. He's a bit like a triumphant king returning home, and he's greeted as the one who would save them. Right? These, are, these, are, these are moments, these are victory moments. For just about anybody else, they're the moments to savor. The crowds, the anointing, the cries to be king. But how does Jesus see it? Because he doesn't see it that way. See, for Jesus, timing is everything. And for Jesus, the time was not yet right. Or in the language of John, the hour had not yet come. We've looked at John in chunks at a time this year, and so it's kind of easy to forget. But Jesus has already said a bunch of times now that his hour has not yet come. Uh, back in chapter 2, the miracle where Jesus turns uh, uh, gallons of water into, into, into wine that doesn't stop, um, he tells his mother, um, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Fast forward a couple of chapters in chapter 4, Jesus is speaking now to a Samaritan woman and he says that a time, or you can translate it as an hour, 
is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 8, we read that uh, no one sees Jesus because his hour had not yet come. See, in other words, up till now, the timing wasn't right. The timing for Jesus to be glorified, to enter victory, had not yet come. But as we reach John chapter 12, for the very first time, and this is why this, is chap- this chapter is particularly significant in the book, Jesus says in verse 23, have a look, he says in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. The time of victory and glory for Jesus has now moved from being something that's in the future to now that is beginning in the present. And so you've got to ask what triggers that shift? What makes Jesus, it's now been weeks since he's entered Jerusalem, now say the time is now to be glorified? Well, John tells us, verses 20 to 22, tells us that um, Greeks come to meet Jesus, uh, those that aren't Jews. Uh, that, tri- that is the trigger for Jesus to recognize his time of glory has begun. See, it's the fact that the world has come. Well, at least people that represent the world, the people and the nations that extend beyond the Jewish community, they've now come to see and speak with Jesus. But if you compare that to, to, the, to the last two events, right, in John chapter 12, the anointing, the entry into Jerusalem, And you just think about this conversation that these non-Jews want to have with the disciples to speak with Jesus. It all kind of, the conversation is pretty insignificant compared to the first two events. And so what's the big deal about this? Why is this the trigger point? We'll come back to that in a bit. But but one of the big takeaways that we see about victory in the Christian life that we ought to see immediately is that it is rarely in the moments and times that we would typically see as victories. Yeah, That's extremely important. That victory in the Christian life is rarely in the moments and times that we would typically see as victories. It's a kind of difficult concept to grapple with. And so we'll flesh that that out more as we come to our second point, the pathway of victory. The pathway of victory. Look again at verse 23. Um, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I mean, what would you expect this hour of glorification to look like? Right? Instinctively, before you even keep looking, what would you say? Right? For me, it'd have to be something amazing, something spectacular. Like If I was just to pause everything I knew about Jesus, um, I'd love it to be something along the lines of Jesus lifting up a mountain with his hands, or, or him splitting the ocean in two with his voice. Right? Something amazing and spectacular like that. But even if we were to answer it from more of a Christian perspective, um, what would that hour of victory and glory look like? Well, maybe the resurrection ticks the box, right? It does, doesn't it? It's glorious, it's, it's spectacular, it's impressive. Or when, or when Jesus ascends from the earth into the heavens, that's glorious, that's supernatural, that's amazing. Right? Both of those seem to be clear victory moments that Jesus is talking about. But what does Jesus go on to say in the very next verse? Verse 24, what does Jesus say? He says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. See, for Jesus, the moment of victory, the moment that he is glorified, is actually in his coming crucifixion. 
In other words, Jesus sees his greatest moment of victory in his death. He compares his moment of victory with a seed, a single kernel of wheat, that will not produce any other seeds unless it first dies. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? Any seed that's sown, in one sense, actually dies. It must decompose into the ground before new seeds sprout. It must decompose before new life is born. And Jesus is saying that he is that seed that must die so that new seeds can be born. See, friends, Jesus understands that that is his moment. That is his victory moment. His death on the cross is tied with his greatest moment of glory. Now, friends, I wonder, I wonder if that surprises you. Does that surprise you? Maybe at one level it doesn't. Right? Maybe at one level it doesn't. See, it's worth pausing for a moment because sometimes reading the Bible um, from 21st century eyes is actually a disadvantage. Right? There's a lot of advantages, but sometimes it's a disadvantage because what we actually do is we read our understanding of things back into the text. Right? Uh, for us, perhaps it's not difficult to see the crucifixion of Jesus on a wooden cross as something that's victorious. After all, the cross has become so much a symbol for the church that it's often at the top of beautifully designed architectural buildings. It's the centerpiece of a deliberately designed chapel. It's in front of this, front of this um, what's this thing called? A podium, a lectern, right? There's one there, there's one behind me, right? There are crosses everywhere. Now, if you've had experience in the Catholic tradition or the Orthodox church tradition, your priests would have had large shiny crosses hanging around their necks. And perhaps you were given a cross-shaped jewelry piece as a gift for maybe a baptism or a dedication. But that wasn't the case in the first century when Jesus lived, was it? See, the cross in the first century was offensive. Right? Death on the cross was reserved for scum, for slaves, for traitors, the worst of criminals. If we were to take our pieces of jewelry and our architecture back to the first century, at the very best, it would be seen as extremely dark and violent humor. It's far more likely that it would have been interpreted as even more shocking than if we walked around wearing jewelry or having our architecture designed in the shape of a mushroom cloud of a nuclear bomb. And yet, and yet, this is the very time that Jesus speaks of his glorification and his victory. If it doesn't surprise you, it, it's meant to. But this doesn't mean that Jesus was necessarily looking forward to it. This is no happy hour. Right? Verse 27, we see that in Jesus' prayer. Verse 27, we see Jesus, just like the Garden of Gethsemane, if you're familiar with it, he prays that his Father would save him from that hour. He, he fears it. Jesus dreads it. And he wants, if at all possible, for this death to be bypassed so he wouldn't have to deal with it. But see, friends, Jesus' hour of victory, his time of glory... It's not something spectacular like we might think. It's his death. It's not even something that Jesus is necessarily looking forward to either. It's the hour he'll be lifted up to die. And if we were to continue to read on ahead through the Gospel of John, we will, which we will do next year when we come back to it, every moment that links to Jesus' death is a disappointment. 
Right? Just at a glance, right? Jesus is betrayed by his closest friends. He's rejected by the religious leaders of his very own people who claim to worship the same God. The political powers of the day ignored his innocence, allowed their soldiers to do whatever they wanted with him. He let um, his, other friend, his other friends left him to die and deserted him. And then he was nailed naked and bloody on a wooden cross. His life at its end was absolutely tragic. His life at its end was an utter failure. The very same person who was anointed by the perfume in our chapter and cried to be king by the masses is now left to die in complete humiliation. See, at first glance, there's nothing victorious in anything that's taking place. And yet Jesus is saying that this is his time of victory. This is his time of glory. Why? It's almost as if Jesus is insane, like he just doesn't get what's going on. But why does Jesus believe that that's the case? Well, in verses 31 and 32, Jesus gives some pretty profound reasons why he believes the key moment of victory is in his death on the cross. Have a look. Verses 31 to 32, Jesus says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. Right? That is all very, very key. See, Jesus gives four massive reasons as to why he sees his victory and glory at his death on the cross. And so we're going to take some time to explain each of the four different reasons that Jesus gives. Um, the first reason is that uh, at Jesus' death, the world is judged. Right? At Jesus' death, the world is judged. The first reason why there's victory is that there's judgment on the world. Now, um, that doesn't sound something to be particularly excited about, um, but judgment is both positive and negative. Right? Uh, what do I mean? Well, negatively, humanity, the world, will be judged because it nails the very Son of God to the cross. It's not difficult to see that we've rebelled against the ways of God in the way that we've hurt Him, that we've hurt the world, that we've hurt one another. But the cross is another level. That's where we see the ultimate rebellion. See, by condemning Jesus to die, the world literally hammers in the final nails on their judgment of God. The world was willing to hang the Son of God to die. And so negatively and confrontingly, the cross of Jesus rightly judges the world for its action. And within that, judgment for us as well. It's a sobering thought. It's a weighty thought. And we shouldn't move too quickly from it. But there's also an incredible positive that comes out of that. See, in the death of the cross, even though it rightly judges all of us, the cross also is a place where the innocent, where the innocent is judged in the place of the guilty. See, in his death, Jesus dies as the one seed to secure the lives of the many seeds. In what can only be described as a supernatural love of God, Jesus, the Son of God, willingly says, Although you condemn me to die and yourself to judgment, on this very cross, I willingly choose to be judged and die in your place. On this very cross, I willingly choose to be judged and die in your place. Right? There are some of you here today who do not yet know and have not yet received the supernatural love of God. 
There are some of you who do not know the wonder and beauty of God's love for you at that cross, on that cross. And so if that's you, would you receive today that news? Know that the king of the universe died for you. He was judged in your place and he did it while you were his very enemy. And so would you come to him today? But that's not the only way that Jesus' death is a time of victory. It's also uh, the moment when Jesus drives out the prince of the world, Satan. See, what initially seems like the checkmate move of Satan, nailing the Son of God to the cross to die, that's actually the place where he is dethroned. His power is lost and he begins his downfall. There's so much to say that that this could easily be a talk by itself, but I'll just say this. Satan's power over humanity has always been his ability to accuse us of our guilt and our wrongdoing. That's always been his ability. He's the great accuser. See, he knows what, how, and where we failed and where we've rebelled against God. And, And he can hold it over us because he's right. But, and track with me here, if the one who never rebelled was judged in place of us. If God the Son Jesus willingly was judged as if he were guilty in his death, then then those who Jesus died in place of are now free from accusation. We are free from Satan's condemnation. He can't hold anything over us. Jesus takes our place on the cross. We receive his righteous robes and we give him back our filthy rags. And so, friends, Satan can no longer accuse you. His power has been dethroned at Jesus' death, and all he's got left is to deceive you and to lie to you and to tempt you into thinking that that just isn't the case. See, because of the cross, the wound in the heart of evil is, is a mortal wound. The only power that he still has is leftovers, it's scraps, and it's one day going to disappear altogether. See, The cross was a momentous victory. At the death of Jesus, the world is judged. Satan is dethroned, but that's not all. It's also the place where the nations can now come. It's not a coincidence that at the beginning of our reading, reading, it's the non-Jews who want to see Jesus. And that triggers this conversation about his hour of victory, his hour of glory. And it's also not a coincidence that we actually don't see Jesus speak to them at all. He kind of moves into this dialogue, talking about his death. See, while these people knew that they wanted to meet with Jesus, what they didn't know was that in order for them to truly meet Jesus, to truly see Jesus, that is to be with him and belong with him, it would take his death for them, for Jew and non-Jew alike, to be able to truly approach him and to be with him. It's by his death that we all can approach God again. It's that by his death that all nations can approach that all nations are able to know God, that that victory has come from his death. And fourthly, if at Jesus' death we can be spared, Satan's dethroned, the nations can draw near, then it makes all the sense in the world that it is by his death that Jesus is lifted up. That's a bit of a wordplay. He's both lifted up because he will be lifted up on a cross, but he's also lifted up because he will be exalted through his death. For Jesus, his victory doesn't come after his crucifixion. His his victory doesn't come after his suffering. His victory comes because of his crucifixion and because of his suffering. 
I love how one writer phrases it. He says that for Jesus, for Jesus, the cross is a throne. His crucifixion is his coronation. And he reigns from that tree. See, friends, if we put it all together, if we put it all together, what looks, what looks like failure, what looks like weakness, what looks like defeat and shame was actually the most powerful, victorious and glorious moment in all of human history. But the reality is that nobody looking at Jesus as he was dying there had any idea that that's what they were looking at. All they would have been able to see is the darkness, the blood, the pain. Nobody could have seen that God was working so powerfully in and through something so dark, something so shameful, something so evil. Jesus' pathway of victory was one of death, one that he wanted to avoid if at all possible. And yet it was through that pathway that justice was done, that Satan was defeated, that nations could come and that he would be exalted. See, friends, this is where victory is supremely seen in the Christian life. It doesn't come in what is most logical. It doesn't come from where we expect to see it the most or the trajectory of victory according to the eyes of the world. In fact, um, we actually don't have time to go through it. The rest of John 12 will actually look at how so many will not believe because they cannot see with their eyes or understand with their hearts what Jesus has come to do. See, the pathway of victory for the Christian life is the way of the cross. It is often unseen. To the word, it will probably make little sense. But the way of the cross is one of victory and glory. And knowing this, if you know this, this has tremendous practical impact for our lives. And so we look and turn to our third point, the effects of victory. Um, see, we see time and time again in the New Testament that Jesus' followers ought to expect their lives to follow the pattern of Jesus' life. Now, Jesus actually tells us that in the passage, verse 26 of John chapter 12, he says that whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. And that's Jesus telling his followers, I'm going the way of the cross. That is the path of victory. Follow me. And a lot of you here say that you do follow him. He's saying you'll come that way also. If we want to go the way of Jesus, we also go the way of the cross. And I know this sounds a little bit odd, but I find that tremendously reassuring. Right? Tremendously reassuring. Let me explain. I don't know about you, but my, my life rarely feels glorious. It just isn't. The world that I'm in that surrounds me, just, that also doesn't feel particularly glorious either. The world is often difficult, it's often hard, it's often dark. And knowing some of your stories, I know that many of you are familiar with pain, with disappointment, with discouragement, with illnesses as well, whether physical or mental. They are often a part and parcel of our lives or the lives of those nearest to us. And that's, that's before we even look beyond us and into the world around us. And I almost wish that I was just being pessimistic, right? See, friends, if we, if we see the path of victory for the Jesus follower is the way of the cross, as Jesus says it is, then victory for the Christian means that there is great glory and great victory to be found in those moments. Having these moments that are not glamorous and not glorious, 
aren't some sign that we're lacking in life or lesser as Christians, even though the world might think that it does. Right? You imagine the churches in the East Asia region that one of our mission partners are, are in, or the churches uh, in the North Africa region where the Chungs have just gone to. Churches in both those areas face tremendous persecution, but are they somehow lesser? Right? Of course they're not. And while we don't face anywhere near what the persecuted church in many parts of the world face, the cross shows us that similarly, some of our greatest victories, some of our most glorious moments, they're not going to appear glorious. They're not going to feel glorious. And that's not to say that there isn't victory to be seen elsewhere, but for the Christian, because of the victory of Jesus on the cross for us, we recognize that some of our greatest victories will be in the mundane. It will be in the ordinary, the painful struggles of life. And so friends, does your life not look particularly glorious? The cross shows us that we can still be at our most glorious and most victorious, even in those unglamorous circumstances. See, if that is all true, if that is all true, what we've talked about, I want to suggest for us two ways to respond. Yeah, two ways to respond. Firstly, for some of us here, we need to repent from desiring to follow victory in the shape of the world rather than the shape of the cross. We need to repent from desiring to follow victory in the shape of the world rather than the shape of the cross. You may have heard of what's commonly called the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel, right? where the belief is that God not only restores you but also wants you to have your best life now. God is the genie in the lamp that gives you the best health, the best assets, the best jobs, the best of everything, if you just trust Him. And that gospel is so far from the truth where the ultimate victory of God is seen in the suffering of the cross. And it's a destructive belief. And I can comfortably say that nobody here embraces the prosperity gospel in its full form. But perhaps a little bit controversially, Many of us have unknowingly embraced a softer, more subtle prosperity gospel. One one that isn't so obvious and is more accepted among a community of believers like this. Here are some diagnostic questions for you to consider whether you may have embraced forms of a softer prosperity gospel. If you encounter suffering, would you find yourself beginning to question how God could let this happen to you? Do you see suffering or setbacks in life as an intrusion in your life that shouldn't be there? Do you have some belief that God owes you because you've worked hard for Him? That because you've worked hard for Him, He ought to work hard for you by providing you know, a job, a steady stream of finances, health, healing from sickness, a spouse, a family, children, grandchildren. Does God owe you that because you worked hard for Him? Do you feel that? Do you believe that? Last question there is, would you want a heaven without God? If I could hypothetically offer you the opportunity, right, the opportunity to enjoy this world as it is, where you would never die, You could enjoy it to its fullest, all the sports, all the shopping, all the games, all the food, all the holidays, and anything else you'd like. You could could ride this merry-go-round of this world forever, but without God, would you take it? 
Friends, if you know deep down the answers to any of these questions are more likely to be yes than no, be wary that you are likely embracing a subtle and softer version of the prosperity gospel in your relationship with God. And it's going to come back to bite you. These are some of the ways that we move towards thinking about victory in our lives, shaped like the world around us, rather than shaped by the cross. And if that's you, can I urge you today to repent? In the quietness of your hearts, pray a prayer of repentance to God. Or or please come before community dinner to speak with Pete, myself. We'd love to pray with you. That's the first way to respond. The second way to respond is this. For others of us, we need to pray for God's help to continue to see and to live cross-shaped lives. But we need God's help to continue to see and live cross-shaped lives. And so we've got to pray. This is something we all need God's help to grow in. Living cross-shaped lives of victory is difficult when the world is telling us that following Jesus is foolishness and not worth doing. We need the strength of God to help us to live cross-shaped lives and His eyes to see that our day-to-day lives are opportunities to live in the victory of the cross. And I'm greatly encouraged to see pockets of that within our community, within our church. Right? I've, seen, I've seen determination that some of you have to do what is God-honoring and what is obedient to the Father and not go with what's convenient for you, even though no one sees it. Right? Doing that is glorious and victory in the eyes of God. I've seen determination to stay faithful in marriages that are difficult. To choose to love, to serve, to be gracious, to be generous and be servant-hearted even when it's filled with pain, hurt and grief. You always should get help if you need it. But the fact that you're wrestling and working with the marriage, that's a glorious cross moment. I've seen the determination from some of you who find it incredibly difficult to just get to church to get to a community group or to any form of fellowship. It might be because you're incredibly introverted or you've got social anxiety. Things just might be really busy for you for for a variety of reasons and yet you make every effort, you put yourself out there each week. That's glory in the eyes of God. Some of you come from difficult homes and difficult backgrounds. And as you continue to persevere in those relationships, You remain committed to being gracious, showing patience, and even reconcile if it's appropriate. And in the eyes of God, that's glorious too. And there are others that are in the midst of a dark place. It might be mental illness, it might be depression, it might be anxiety, it might be a recent thing, it could be a chronic thing. And while you look for things to manage, ways to manage it and to improve, you still cling to Jesus, even if it's by a single finger. And you trust in the goodness of God, even in the darkness. That's an amazing, glorious cross moment. And there are so many, many more. Do you see the opportunities all around your life to live gloriously and victoriously in the shape of the cross? Pray that God might continue to open our eyes to see. And if that is what we're praying, if that is what we're praying, that God would help us to see and live the mundane, ordinary, and even broken disjointed aspects of life as as cross-shaped, if we're praying that, where it rarely appears to be glorious in the moment, what will happen is we'll slowly begin to make the most of the opportunities despite being in a world filled with hurt, pain, and discouragement. Because there's often a concealed way for us to victoriously love God and others, 
shaped in the likeness of the victory of the cross. Um, let me close by looking at uh, the Apostle Paul, the writer of half of the New Testament. He speaks on this exact topic. And at the end of his second letter to the Corinthians, um, he reflects on about a thorn that's in his side. And we don't know exactly what that thorn is. But whatever it is, it's disabled him. It's tormented him. And he's wished that it would go away. He writes this. Three times, Paul writes, I pleaded with the Lord to take that thorn away from me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Note that it doesn't say my power is made perfect when I deliver you from all weakness. It's not that my power is made perfect when you are rescued decisively from setbacks and sufferings. It's that my power is manifest in weakness. And therefore, Paul continues, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That is someone who sees and lives the victory and glory of the cross, and I pray that we would do the same. Let me pray. Father God, we... um,